0: I mean, why? 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 From the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, you're listening to Veritalk. Veritalk. You talk. Your window into the minds of PhDs at Harvard University. I was curious.
1: curious. I've always wondered, why is, where did how it, did we get,
0: why? Why? why, 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 why? I'm Anna Fisher Pinkert. Last week, we talked about food and diaspora with Nikita Obigadu. Nikita told us about the way in which immigrant foods can slowly but surely make their way into mainstream culture. Culture is always changing. Culture is always evolving. There is something unrealistic in expecting, you know, food to just stay the way it is. And... Yeah, when I look around Harvard Square, where I work, I see restaurants that serve up dishes inspired by Vietnamese banh mi sandwiches, Greek souvlaki, and Korean bulgogi. But there's also this other kind of restaurant that keeps cropping up in Cambridge. These are spots that serve bowls full of kale and adamame and roasted beets, or meatball sandwiches where the meatballs are actually made of pea protein. These are restaurants where there is no meat and sometimes even no dairy on the menu. Um, can I get a sole bowl? And can I get that with um, half kale, half brown rice and quinoa? Sure thing. And I think that's it. Good. Now, I'm not vegetarian or vegan, but I order from these places a lot. And judging by the lines at lunchtime, so do a lot of other people. I wanted to understand why there were so many of these so-called plant-based restaurants opening up in my neighborhood. So I asked Nina Geichman.
1: My name is Nina Geichman, and um, I'm a G6 in the Department of Sociology at Harvard. I'm a cultural sociologist, and so what we study is, you know, how culture is changing and um, who is involved in, in making those changes.
0: Nina actually became a vegan herself pretty recently. She'd been a vegetarian for about 10 years, but up until the last few years, she saw veganism as a little bit out there.
1: I sort of could imagine being vegetarian, but vegan just seemed, seemed too extreme. And yet in the last few years, it really has transformed quite significantly. And so as a sociologist, I was interested in asking the sociological question of how does a cultural practice become mainstream? And this seemed like the perfect topic. I asked Nina to tell me about the
0: origins of veganism.
1: The man who coined the term vegan is Donald Watson, and that was in England in 1944. Before that, vegetarianism was, you know, something that was related a lot of the time to religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs, um, and also the sort of notion of healthism, like perfecting the body, uh, which was often promoted by sort of religious advocates. Donald Watson wanted to distinguish between people who were eating meat and the people who were eating also eggs and dairy, and he felt like we should not consume any animal products, not just dietary, but also um, wool and other byproducts, leather, et cetera. And so he, he coined that term in 1944, And by that term, he meant a lifestyle that encompasses, you know, avoiding any harm to other beings. In the 1970s and 1980s, um, in England and then increasingly in the U.S. as well, veganism became a part of more of what's known as the animal rights movement. Milk production is cruel because calves are taken from their their mothers soon after birth and sent to the slaughterhouse or veal calf units. So the humans can have the milk and it became sort of like a means to an end. like in order to sort of help animals, people would I would adopt a vegan diet as soon as the milk stops.
0: But veganism has changed a lot over the decades. Um, In
1: a sense, veganism has been conflated since the 1970s with the animal protection or animal rights movement, and that is a social movement that is interested in collective action against corporations, against the state, and it's about political action. And what's happening now is veganism is emerging and sort of being disassociated with from that to some extent and becoming its own distinct, what I call, lifestyle movements.
0: What's up, guys? It's Nicole, and today I'm going to be sharing my tips for going vegan. I have only
1: learned. And these movements are era, about not so much them, leafleting and protests and sort of um, edu- like handing out educational advocacy materials, and it's more about consumption. We want people to think about eating healthy in a different way. It's easy. It's fun. It's approachable. So it's sure it's quite a, quite a sort of a, I guess capitalistic approach in a sense because it's like by just dis- by choosing certain to consume certain things versus others, you're making sort of a political statement. And some people see as political and others um, do not. And so I think with that, it's become less fringe.
0: We have three kids here who are saying that a plant-based meal is delicious. That's fantastic. There's There's this newer term called a plant-based diet. And it's a term that's been kicking around since the 1970s, but it recently came into prominence as a way to talk about people who don't necessarily adhere to all the principles of veganism, but do eat mostly plants. And like all labels, it means different things to different people. I think vegan is a little more clear because sort of the
1: ideological foundations. Plant-based is a little bit um, mushy. But I actually, in my dissertation, argue that that's part of the appeal of that term is that, um, in a way, it's it's created kind of looser boundaries for the movement. And so it's allowed more people to participate in it.
0: Nina calls the people who are helping to bring veganism or plant-based diets into the mainstream cultural entrepreneurs. And she splits these cultural entrepreneurs into three groups.
1: Um, I call them the icons, the informers, and the innovators. And so, the icons, what they're doing is they're changing the symbolic meaning of veganism, and they're linking it to, you know, notions of authenticity and um, also athletic performance.
0: First, Tom Brady did it. Now, local Olympian Ally Raisman has partnered with Needham-based Purple Carrot to help. These, fans,
1: these are the celebrities, the athletes that are making it normal, showing that you
0: can, you know, be on a plant-based diet and actually thrive athletically, and so on. The icons are celebrities like James Cameron, the director of Titanic and Avatar, or Marco Borges, who is a personal trainer and nutrition coach for Beyonce and Jay Z.
1: The informers are the ones that are changing um, our knowledge. Eating as close as possible to food in its natural, unrefined form. So it's you not know, so fruit, much just knowledge about the animal issues, but also knowledge about the you know, health and nutritional issues, the impact on the environment, um, what's actually happening you know behind closed doors in factory farms.
0: These are the medical doctors and research scientists who write books and blogs intended for public consumption. People like Dean Ornish, who's one of Bill Clinton's physicians.
1: It gives you a much more constant level of energy.
0: And then finally, the innovators are the
1: ones that are innovating the market. They're actually creating new sectors.
0: The innovators are entrepreneurs like Ethan Brown, who founded the company Beyond Meat, or Pat Brown, who founded Impossible Foods. Now, maybe you haven't heard of either of these companies. Both produce a product made exclusively from plants that is meant to taste exactly like meat. And they've generated interest from people who are following a vegan or plant-based diet, but they've also generated interest from venture capital firms and from the regular old meat industry.
1: Into the next iconic burger from Carl's Jr., the beyond famous star with cheese, legendary meaty
0: flavor, plant-based patty. It goes beyond your wildest burger dreams.
1: The most interesting thing has been um, companies like uh, Tyson
0: investing in Beyond Meat. Tyson Chicken owns a 5% stake in Beyond Meat. Now, I have to say, this seems nuts to me. I ate my fair share of Dr. Prager's veggie burgers in college, and I don't remember anyone marketing those frozen patties as the next big thing. So why the sudden interest in burgers made of pea protein?
1: Now, You know, it's actually really interesting because... um, companies that that have been around since like the 70s have been creating, you know, tofu burgers and and so on and all these products, frozen veggie burgers, etc. Some of these companies are a little bit like confused about why there's suddenly so much like venture capital interest in like companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible. It's actually quite interesting because these products that existed before were marketed and created for vegans. They were created for people who were trying to find, you know, alternative products proteins to animal to animal protein. And what these companies are doing instead is they're targeting the average consumer. Their goal is not to provide vegan foods for vegans, but their goal is to provide essentially a complete change in the social system. That's why I refer to them as cultural entrepreneurs. Within sociology, cultural entrepreneurs are the people who are changing culture itself
0: these cultural entrepreneurs have come up with some pretty interesting approaches to introducing non-meat to meat eaters. The
1: Beyond Burger, it kind of, quote-unquote, bleeds beet juice, so you have this, like, feeling like you're biting into a real, quote-unquote, real burger from an animal. And so, you know... So, wait a second. So the the burger literally bleeds beet juice? Yeah, the the Beyond Burger. And, in fact, (laughs) when I went to visit um, the, the factory... Um, there's like all these subsections of like, you know, there's a whole taste department. And there's a whole department uh, on for color where they want to make sure that, like, it looks raw when you first, you know, look at it. and then as it's cooking, it becomes sort of this, like brownish gray, like sizzle. And so it really, they're trying to, like, absolutely recreate meat,
0: so obviously, there's a ton of food out in the world that you could eat without coming up with these inventive new ways of recombining plants to make something that looks like a burger. So why, why go through all the effort? Absolutely. You know, I,
1: as a sociologist, I would put this into the sort of category of um, absurd solutions to absurd problems. I think the, the main reason this is happening is because... I mean, a lot of people who are sort of health advocates and who follow a whole food, plant-based diet, which is just like, you know, foods found in their natural state, would say, like, what is the point of, of doing all this? And I, I can sympathize with that perspective. But on the other hand, the people who are who are creating these products, a lot of them actually, they're now cultural entrepreneurs, but they a lot of them come actually from deep within the animal rights movement. And they have just seen that education and advocacy, so trying to get people to follow a different diet, is just not that effective. And so these people are taking inspiration from behavioral economics, which shows that often peoples it's easier to change people's sort of behavior in terms of not trying to change their behavior, just replacing something so that essentially they don't have to change their behavior. And then slowly, potentially, then you could change people's opinions.
0: There's one other approach to getting people to change their behavior. Give them meat, real meat, but without the cow.
1: Within the sort of vegan movement, the terms that are preferred are cell-based meat or clean meat. Um, Some people call it cultured meat. These are the companies that are trying
0: to grow a steak inside a laboratory.
1: So what happens is they take animal cells, they put them into a medium, which allows them those to grow. There's already been a, um, a burger that was produced, I think it was 2015 by Mosin Meat, And then today there's a company called Memphis Meat and uh, Just, which was formerly Hampton Creek. There are companies in Silicon Valley who are trying to produce these products and none of them are on the market yet. This is all like 0% of the market. But by 2021, it seems like we might actually have um, the first commercially available product. I think this is really exciting technology because we really do have a huge problem when it comes to the ethical and the environmental consequences of animal agriculture. So it has huge potential in in changing um, our food system, of course, we're not we're not quite sure about what the consequences will, will be of that. But it's not. I mean, it seems like a crazy idea. A lot of people call it Franken meat. But on the other hand, I think if a lot of people knew how their meat is currently produced and they actually looked at footage of factory farms, which is ninety nine percent of of meat is produced in factory farms, I think people would have some qualms about that as well.
0: One thing I'm thinking about is that right now, you know, you can get an impossible meatball sandwich here in Cambridge. And um, I know a lot of people who sort of have tried it as a novelty. It's like, well, this is the new thing. Like, let's see what it tastes like. How does something go from kind of being a novelty at the edge of what people are likely to eat to being something that? is just super normal for everyone to have for lunch that's so common that we don't even think about it. Has that like happened in the past before or are we looking at sort of a new frontier for how we eat? Well that's a really interesting question because
1: in fact prior to to World War II it was a novelty to have it was pretty novel to have meat uh, in general like people often had you know roast beef on Sunday night or something like that and for the most part they were eating like Pretty plant based, and so that you know happened. That change happened in part because of the um, post-war boom and the economy, and the sort of um, the connection of farming to the government and like the subsidies from the government that made it, you know, very
0: cheap to eat meat. So where do you think the future of food is going? This is the biggest question I'm going to ask you. Um, you know, when when I look at a plate today in America, you know, and I think of what American food looks like, I think of um, a cheeseburger with fries and a Coke. Where are we going? Is that going to change? How long is it going to take to change? And And what's that plate going to look like in the future?
1: I think in reality... It's probably going to stay the same on the outside in the sense that it's probably still going to be processed food and it's just going to be more plant-based or it's going to be meat um, that's grown within a laboratory, just like a lot of the time our vegetables are now also grown in greenhouses and so on instead of like on farms necessarily. And so actually the plate itself might not change so much the like composition of the plate, but it will become probably more plant-based. That is going to be a combination of the work of these cultural entrepreneurs and probably also just the fact that it is like completely unsustainable, our demand for meat, in particular in the West.
0: Several studies, including a recent study in the journal Science, have linked the production and consumption of meat to greenhouse gas emissions and to climate change. Animal agriculture also just requires a bunch of resources. Water, feed, space for animals and their waste. Mina sees a future in which climate change puts tremendous pressure on all of those resources.
1: Our consumption of meat is definitely going to go down. And so it's just a question of, will it go down in like sort of like a a dire way? Or will it go down because of technological um, innovations that allow us to still consume those same products, but in a different way?
0: When I can't get a hold of a juicy quarter pounder, A beet-bleeding burger might be the next best thing. Next week on Veritalk, we're going with our guts. It's a really complicated system to try to look at individually. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are trying to take advantage of this by coming up with these probiotic products that promise these big results um, by feeding you one strain of a bacterium. But it's just so unlikely that those are gonna have actual effects. If there is any nutrition trend more popular than eating a plant-based diet, it's trying to have a healthy gut. But what is a healthy gut? Where does it come from? And what are those good gut bacteria actually doing in there? If you're hungry for more, subscribe to Veritalk on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to rate us and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners, so you can email us at veritalk.fas.harvard.edu, and you can find us online at gsas.harvard.edu slash veritalk. Veritalk is produced by me, Anna Fisher-Pinkert. Our sound designer is Ian Koss. Our logo is by Emily Kroll. Our executive producer is Anne Hall. Special thanks this week to Graham Ball, Youth Radio Oakland, and Nina Geichman. Nina is an affiliate of the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs and the Center for European Studies at Harvard University. She is also the recipient of a Canada Graduate Doctoral Scholarship from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council.